I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion fits? Yes, we are talking about the comedy classic, Young Frankenstein. You know, the funny thing is, is that I grew up a choir kid and I had to sing that song for like legitimately more than one time throughout multiple choirs. Because uh, that is just a, a staple when you're a choir kid. And every choir instructor out there knows the absolute horror of just choir kids always wanting to do the, the monster part <laughs> in the middle of rehearsal. I you mean, know, we, we would absolutely just be jazzing it up and then you get to that part and, and everybody just goes... And then the choir director goes, no, we're singing it serious. <laughs> it's it, it it says a lot that the song is now, in modern culture, known more for that movie than the movie it was originally written for. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where Harlem sits? Oh, it's Yeah. Um, it... Or, or any of the gazillion D movies it's been featured in since then. Yeah. yeah. It is something to have just a bunch of kids. And in fact, I think I knew that joke via other choir kids before I even saw the movie. I didn't even know what joke we were referencing. I just knew it was a, a meme in choir that you did that to annoy your choir teacher. Ah, uh, early memes, the pre-internet yeah. memes. <laughs> yeah, pre-internet memes, yeah. Um, because I I didn't even and and then I think I saw the movie later and I went, Oh, that's what we've been doing to <laughs> to annoy the choir teacher all these years. So yeah. Uh yeah. So so why are we doing Young Frankenstein this week? Um while this is a Disney podcast. The Disney brand doesn't really do horror all that much, but they did purchase 20th Century Fox, and there's a lot of horror movies in that catalog. And since it's you know it's the spooky season, a little comedy horror never hurt anybody. <laughs> yeah, and we aren't allowed to talk about the Universal monsters on this podcast. No, which is what I really want to do. Universal is 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 the rival. Universal yeah. and Disney don't get along. Otherwise, uh, Disney World would have Marvel characters. Yeah, look 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 for look for my Universal Monsters podcast coming soon. Um, no, uh, this 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 is really just the. Uh, we wanted to talk about a movie we liked, and you can't stop us because it's our podcast, Neener, Neener, Neener. I mean, this, 
couple of months ago when we talked about uh, Princess Bride, uh, this is definitely another one of those movies where every line is a one-liner. You know, our circle of friends can just have hours-long conversation just quoting this movie. We literally have friends with a cat named Abby Normal. Yes. <laughs> Abby somebody. Abby someone. It's not even Abby somebody. That's the thing that, that messed me up when I was watching the, the, the rewatch. And he says Abby someone. And I went, has it really been Abby someone all, this, all these years? Mandela effect? And it really has been Abby someone all these years. How's that for breaking your brain? It's not Abby somebody, it's Abby someone. And this is one of the rare instances where we get to talk about Mel Brooks, one of the greatest comedic directors of all time. Oh, Mel Brooks. I just want to revel in the genius that is Mel Brooks. And the genius that is Gene Wilder. Join me for my Mel Brooks podcast coming eventually. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the other podcast that, that you want to do is just talk about Mel Brooks till the end of time. <laughs> I can too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh. who could? Yeah. And again, as you said, Gene Wilder, uh, a great comedic actor. And I mean, for us, mostly known as a comedic actor. But of course, you know, like it's his comedic actors and it's him as Willy Wonka. Which is not only a comedic role, but that's a, that's a horror. That's a spooky season right there. Just that tunnel scene is maybe the height of childhood horror. Yeah. So, you know, that, that right there is, is on the top of everybody's Halloween which kind of makes me wonder now that Netflix kind of has the right to Willy Wonka, are they even going to make it on that level of scary? Cause... Well, I mean, Roll Dahl always had his, you know, one foot in that that sensibility. Because I feel like that was the one thing that the Johnny Depp version kind of, the Tim Burton version, I should say, kind of took a few steps back on that one. Which is odd, because you would think that Tim Burton would just go completely in the horror direction for that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, this... We can't undersell Gene Wilder in this, because this entire movie was his idea. This is yeah. not so much a Mel Brooks movie as it is a Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks movie. Um, Mel Brooks tends to get all the credit, but the initial idea was Gene Wilder's. He brought this to Mel Brooks while they were working on Blazing Saddles. He said, I want to do a Frankenstein movie, and Mel Brooks was not into it. Mel Brooks didn't want to do it. He was like, no, 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 there's too many Frankenstein movies. There's son of Frankenstein and brother of Frankenstein and second cousin of Frankenstein. We do not need a Frankenstein movie. And Gene Wilder was like, no, 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 I want it to be like his grandson, but he does not want to be a Frankenstein. He's running away from it, but they keep pulling him back in and, you know, hijinks ensue. And Mel Brooks was like, okay, that does sound funny. So, 
and that really works in this movie's favor because one of the key elements of every adaptation of the original Frankenstein is Victor just running away from the responsibility of what he just did. Turning around here, Frederick embraces that responsibility and does everything in his power to make the monster a full human, as it were. A man, as it were. Yeah. And I love um, that, you know? I'm going to say, uh, full, you know, full uh, disclosure here, I really, really, really love the Frankenstein story. Mm-hmm. To the point where one of my favorite uh, academic papers I've ever written, and it almost became my thesis. I considered taking it and turning it into my thesis for a short minute. Um, but I did write a rather elaborate uh, paper during my, my master's for... Um, if you've ever read the novel Frankenstein, which most people have not. Mary Shelley's Modern Prometheus. Yeah, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. Um, you you know that the story of the novel is not the story that people know. The film took a lot of liberties with that story. Um. So if you're like, oh, you know, it's a guy and he uses lightning to create a must. Well, no, there's no lightning in the book. And he's got an assistant called uh, uh, Igor. No, not in the book. And, you know, uh, there's a bride in there that, well, not really in the book. There's talk of a bride, but that's not in the book, really. And, you know. And there's a little girl by a rip, not in the book. And there's, you know, villagers at a windmill, not in the book. And there's, you know, like all the iconic bits, not in the book. Okay. From the uh, Universal film, yeah. And, yeah, and you know those because of the Universal film uh, series. Because even Igor, not in the first Universal film. If you're talking about Igor in the first Universal film... You haven't seen the Universal films either. If you're talking about Igor in uh, Bride of Frankenstein, you hadn't seen the, that film either. Um, he doesn't show up until Son of Frankenstein, and also his name's spelled with a Y. Um, so I wrote a whole paper about why do we not know the story of Frankenstein, and where do we get all these concepts from? It turns out that most of these concepts don't even come from the film. The film was already drawing from things like plays, earlier films. One of the earliest films we have ever is an adaptation of Frankenstein. The silent uh, it, era. Yeah, I mean, extremely silent era. I'm talking about it's like eight to ten minutes long, I think. Hmm. Um, it is an extremely early film. Uh, not even a feature-length film. That's um, barely a short, honestly. Yeah, but it was it was extremely early, um, like you know, Lumiere Brothers type film. Hmm. Um, and it's based on the tale of Frankenstein. Um, and I've watched uh, basically as much of this stuff as still exists. 
uh, today, and a lot of it is fascinating. And I actually did a lot of research to trace where these various elements come from, where the lightning uh, as the method for creation of the monster. In the book, you don't know where the monster comes from. It's just Victor says, I studied a lot. And suddenly I figured out how to create life. And then there was a monster. Like Mary Shelley just kind of glosses over that. She's like, uh, and then Victor did some sciencey stuff and boom, monster. Anyway, moving along, because that's not the part I'm interested in. The important thing is he created life and then he abandoned it. And that's the thing I want to talk about. Um, Mary Shelley, the originator of science fiction. <laughs> yeah, science fiction was created by a woman. Shut up, incels. Um, but yeah, so I did a whole paper tracing like where all this stuff comes from. Um, I went through like uh, old plays, uh, old films, all the way through Lovecraft and Reanimator, all the way down to like Rocky Horror Picture Show, all the way down to when I wrote it, there was a brand new frankenstein film that had just come out in theaters that i went and saw it came out like a week before my paper was due <laughs> and i went to the movie theater and took notes and put that in my paper um to trace all the way down to the most modern frankenstein adaptation i could i am very into frankenstein lore so i love this this film particularly uh this film is also in my frankenstein paper um gene wilder loved these films so much that he based this entire movie off of it so when they talk about the history of victor frankenstein it is not from the novel it is explicitly from the universal films um, up through Ghost of Frankenstein. So it is Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, and Ghost of Frankenstein specifically that he is drawing from. And they loved the film so much that they actually found the original um, set props. pieces. Yeah. The lab props from the original James Whale Frankenstein. And they the still worked. Found, yeah, the people who found these props are credited in the opening of this movie. Yeah, they still worked. They plugged them in and they ran electricity through them and they still sparked and sputtered the way they were supposed to. Uh, and they look brilliant on screen. Mel Brooks went through the trouble of framing his shots and doing his cinematography in the same way James Whale would have, uh, which is the director of the original um, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And in a big, honestly, I'm very surprised that the studio will let him do it. This movie's in black and white. Yeah, they had a huge fight over it. The um, studio did not want to let them do it, but they, uh, they had a huge fight over it and eventually you know, force them into it. It feels like we had the same conversation last year with Frank and Weenie. Yeah. Um, going back to our, um, our, uh, Brendan Fraser 
episode. Um, if you if you love all the the Frankenstein stuff and you love Brendan Fraser, uh, go watch a movie called Gods and Monsters. It is about the life and specifically the final years of James Whale, who directed the first two Frankenstein films. Um, it has Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser doing a wonderful little bit of acting tennis. It's it's a really talky film, um, but it does have a little bit where they kind of uh, do a bit of uh, recreation of some of the the Frankenstein sets and uh, filming as well with Ian McKellen and, and Brendan Fraser, and it's it's really cool. So if you're into that, also a good film. But so, let's get back to this one, because it is awesome. And we kind of have a bit of a story with this one, because you and I, back in the day, saw the stage musical version of Young Frankenstein when you were still living here in Chicago. Yeah, um, we got to see a couple of people from the original Broadway cast, even. It, including Roger Bard as Fred, uh, Frederick who Disney fans might know as the singing voice of Hercules. Yeah. Um, I think we mentioned that when we, when we did our Hercules episode that we, we had gotten to see him, but uh, it's, it's really, it's really good as a stage play, um, especially the putting on the Ritz sequence. Um, if you get, if you get to see it done right by a professional company, um, the way it's supposed to be done, you know, they, they bring down like mirrors from, the fly and uh there's a a whole group of dancers dressed as the creature and you know it's, it's a really well done sequence and uh i remember when we saw after we saw uh the play when we were leaving you you were surprised in how well roger bart sounded like gene wilder yeah. uh, it's a really really good uh performance on that um, so just, uh, really good, really good, um, carryover on that really good translation from stage to, I mean, from screen to stage. If you're, if you're ever able to see live theater again, <laughs> yeah. um, hi- highly recommended if you can catch a, a professional company doing it. Um, so let's talk about some of the cast cause this has just a, one of the most stellar casts. Um, of course, we've already talked about Gene Wilder, um, legend. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've already how talk, said. How do you talk about Gene Wilder? Yeah, I mean, we we've already said uh, everybody in our generation knows him as Willy Wonka. Probably was how we knew him first in our childhoods. But of course, you know, from the Mel Brooks era, you got him in the in the producers and Blazing Saddles. As well, and then, uh, just I, I mean, I, I could sit here and list credits all day, but I'm not gonna. It's just legendary. We've got Peter Boyle as the monster, probably best remembered to modern audiences as the the dad and everybody loves Raymond. Mm-hmm. I, I knew him as uh. 
his his character on X Files. He got an Emmy for that one. Uh, he guested in in one episode and uh, really left a mark, you know, for for that one. And I I knew him at that point. And I went like, hey, it's the the guy who played the the monster in Young Frankenstein. Um, but he's really good in that episode of of X Files. Um, possibly the only the only uh, time a, a guest actor won for for X Files, I think. Once again, legendary character actor Marty Feldman as Igor. And uh, like a lot of his comedic roles, they make sure to mention his eyes. <laughs> well, yeah, he he did have uh, his his bulging eyes were his kind of calling card stemmed from a thyroid condition and a few other things. He, he said that had he not ended up with such peculiar eyes, he would have never had a career. He said that he would have just been a background actor with one or two lines. No one would have ever known his, his name. And so he said that if he'd ever tried to correct them, have some kind of surgery or, or something, he said it would have killed his career. Um, but since he stood out and since he had such talent for comedy anyway, he was able to really make a name for himself and you would always remember him. Because if nothing else, he was the guy with the bulging eyes, right? Uh, so he he made it work for him. Um, and he really was just a comedic genius. He wrote one of my favorite um, comedy sketches of all time. And... Uh, I didn't know it until I was doing research for this. He is the co-author of the famous Four Yorkshiremen sketch. Hmm. Did you know that? I did not. Well, when I say house, it was just a hole in the ground covered by a sheet of tarpaulin. But it was a house to us. We were evicted from our hole in the ground. (laughs) We had to go and live in a lake. You were lucky to have a lake. There were 150 of us living in a shoebox in the middle of the road. Yeah. And of, and of course, he would become a, a regular in some of Mel Brooks's other films, like uh, silent movie and stuff like that. Yeah, and um, just a really uh, interesting guy. So uh, we have another uh, Mel Brooks regular, uh, Cloris Leachman as Frau Blucher. Of course, if you watched TV at all during the 70s, you'll remember her for Mary Tyler Moore show and all of that. Yeah, just really great. We talked about her when uh, she showed up in Muppet Movie. Terry Gar gets to play Inga, the sexy lab assistant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, this, is, this is Terry Gar at her hottest. Yeah, Terry Gar at her absolute hottest. Um. She got her uh, break in 
a very interesting episode of Star Trek, the original Star Trek, which was meant to be a backdoor pilot that never took off. Assignment Earth, which was so bizarre, where it had that, um, what was his name, Gary Seven or something like that, that was like a guy who went back to the 60s and was a super spy or something i don't know it was a really bad episode and you can see why it it never took off but it was supposed to be a pilot for some other gene ronberry series but uh she was in what is probably my favorite movie of all time close encounters of the third kind she was the long-suffering wife that eventually uh gets abandoned because going off with aliens is much more interesting she she gets to be the hot, sexy Transylvanian lab assistant <laughs> in this one. We get Mel, Mel Brooks regular Kenneth Mars back again as the inspector who tries to chase down the monster with his strange wooden arm that never quite works right. Uh, if you've seen the producers, you remember him as Franz Liebkin, the guy who writes the the uh, play Springtime for Hitler. He seems to always play these kind of characters in Mel Brooks's film because Inspector Camp does do the 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 one-handed pose at one point in this movie. Yeah. Um. And he he does a similar kind of accent as well. So. And another Mel Brooks regular in Madeline Kahn who plays uh Frederick's fiance Elizabeth. We talked about her again in uh, Muppet movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when she showed up for uh, a part in that. Uh, she worked with Mel Brooks a lot in uh, What's Up Doc and High Anxiety and History of the World Part 1, Blazing Saddles, you know. Mm-hmm. One of her, her best roles ever, probably Clue. Yep. It just, it, it, so, so great in that. And he used to talk about Clue. Flames at the side of my face. <laughs> yeah. I hated her so much. It it the it flame flames flames on the side of my face, breathing breath heaving breath. Uh, probably one of the best line deliveries ever is to have that that flames line. Um, so yeah, and and then you've got just you know some some people in the in the background like Gene Hackman popping in to play the blind man, and uh, even some of the tiny little bit characters that you don't really recognize are kind of interesting, like the medical student that harasses uh, Frederick at the beginning of the film is a man named Danny Goldman who you will better remember uh, if you're an 80s kid as Brainy Smurf from the Smurfs. (laughs) So, yeah, there's a a lot of kind of interesting people scattered throughout. And, of course, uh, while you don't really uh, see Mel Brooks uh, much on screen here, although he is in the background i think in one shot as a villager uh you do hear him a couple of times he is the werewolf their wolf their wolf their castle Um, (laughs) he is uh the cat that gets hit by the dart when frederick throws it through the window 
And he is the voice of Victor Frankenstein when they pan through the lab and you hear the ghostly voices of the creation of the original monster. He is uh, Victor's uh, voice being played back. So, yeah, and this was on purpose. Like Gene Wilder did not want Mel Brooks to be seen in the film. Yeah, he said that Mel Brooks, when he is on camera, tends to break the fourth wall a lot and pull the audience out of the movie. And he did not want that to happen. He wanted this to be a more self-contained movie. I mean, history of the world. He does the it's good to be the king to the camera. Even in uh, I'm trying to think of another of the other even in um, Blazing Saddles, he would often just look to the camera directly and directly address the audience during the film. So I guess he didn't want something that either intentionally or accidentally that would happen. Yeah. So um, Gene Wilder basically put an ultimatum forward of I'll do this movie. I'll do this movie with you, but I don't want you in a big part on screen. I, I, I want you, I want you to not be in it basically. So they pulled Mel Brooks's cameos back to just kind of audio stuff. So, like, if you didn't see Mel Brooks's name in the movie, you wouldn't even know he was in it. <laughs> yeah, honestly, because, um, like I said, I I think he's in the in the crowd, but he is really hard to to spot among all the the villagers. There is one person who's basically in the movie just because his name is Frankenstein. <laughs> There's a guy uh, named Clement von Frankenstein who is listed as villager screaming at the monster. Uh, and basically he's kind of just in the movie because his name is Clement von Frankenstein. He, is, he, he was in a lot of films. He has a really extensive um, uh, credit list. And a very interesting life. His family was uh, basically um, some minor uh, nobility from Austria and a diplomat who got caught in England when the Nazis invaded Austria and ended up receiving um british nationality and a knighthood uh in recognition of the fact that they were nobility uh, back in austria um and escaped the nazis that way and then his parents died in a plane crash when he was really young and so he was kind of brought up by some friends of his parents and then he ended up moving to California and became a playboy with all of the uh, British expats that were famous and hanging out over there and then 
he decided to become an actor. <laughs> I mean, he just had a really interesting uh, career, but I'm pretty sure he's in the movie Young Frankenstein just because somebody told, like, either Mel Brooks or Gene Wilder or something, like, hey, I actually know a guy whose name is Frankenstein. That'd be, you know, there are worse reasons to get casted in a movie. Because honestly, this was only the second film he was ever in in his life. Um, he went on to have a lot of other more interesting and uh, notable roles with actual speaking parts. Uh, but he had only been a extra in one movie before he got cast in this. So I am entirely sure that he ended up in this movie just because somebody told one of those two, like, I know a guy whose name is Frankenstein. You should put him in your Frankenstein movie. And the the last person that's kind of of note is there's a, there's a guy who gets rolled out on a stretcher in the classroom scene at the beginning. And Frederick kind of uh, pokes and prods and punches him in the nuts. Um, Mr. Hilltop. Uh, that guy's name is Liam Dunn, and he has kind of a sad and strange Disney connection. His final film that he worked on was The Shaggy DA in uh, 1976. And as they were filming a scene in a roller rink, he collapsed. And they had to take him to the hospital and he passed away and he had to be replaced in the film with John Fiedler. And so he is uncredited in his final movie, which happened to be a Disney film because he collapsed on set and then passed away right after that. That it it was just an odd Disney connection, but he was a uh, a character actor who was in tons of different films, including quite a few uh, Mel Brooks films and many uh, Disney films. Kind of a a sad note to to end the actor role on, but uh, it was a kind of a strange thing to run across in the research so let's get into the film let's start with uh with frederick himself uh uh, don't you mean frederick frederick (laughs) so uh freddy here you know he he his his family lineage is a tender subject for him Uh, as we've mentioned there's this one student that goads him the entire time of, you know, uh, what about your grand? Your grandfather did this. Your grandfather did that. And then it slowly and slowly over the scene enrages him to the point where he like stabs his own leg with a scalpel out of frustration. That had to hurt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, bravo to him for like no selling that, but dude, that had to hurt. So yeah, Frederick, he's a brain surgeon 
and he's teaching this class on the brain. Hence, we had the we had Mr. Hilltop. He block a part of his brain, and there's no pain sensations and stuff like that. Well, but, apparently there's pain sensations because he does show a pain reaction. Like you see him go, oh, you know, but he he doesn't move. He got kneed in the nuts. It's gonna hurt, but there's no reaction because he because uh, he, uh, the, the the lesson is voluntary and, and involuntary reflexes. But uh, I mean, I think everyone on some level can empathize with Frederick here because. I think that everyone has at least one family member that they're ashamed of. I think everyone has at least one, and for him, it's his grandfather. How his grandfather went, you know, kooky, wanted to reanimate a dead person. And that's kind of become his family's legacy. And he's doing everything in his power to divorce himself from that. Again, even changing the pronunciation of his name. Just so he's no longer associated with that. Yeah, the the interesting thing is is that apparently Victor's shenanigans have spread far and wide to some extent. I'm pretty sure there's a young girl who wrote a book about it in this universe. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is is that in in this, um, it does seem a little iffy as to who knows what, because the this one medical student seems pretty sure that Victor did something. Uh, Frederick says that there's no proof he did anything. The Transylvanian townspeople have lived through it, so they're pretty sure that, you know, like, they've seen the monsters. More than once, apparently. More than once. According to what some of these villagers are saying. I believe they say five times. Yeah. Um, It's based on four movies, but they they say five times. So um, the people that he shows the creature to in the putting on the Ritz scene seem unconvinced that what he's going to show them will actually be true. So they're not convinced by the story of Victor Frankenstein. So it does seem that various people have their own beliefs about the truthfulness of the story, which I think is, is cool. It's even implied uh, there's that one lawyer that gives uh, Frederick the uh, the the will and testament of uh, of Victor that it goes back to his great grandfather. So even before Victor, there was a Frankenstein doing something in that castle. Yeah. Okay, since it's it's just essentially a sequel to a movie made by another studio, there was The Son of Frankenstein, which was Victor's son. So I assume that would be Frederick's father. Yeah. Or, uh, I assume. Yeah, so, you know, if if, if Victor is his grandfather, you know, so, you know, he, he is the son of the son of Frankenstein, yeah. Hmm. 
you know, Victor's father was a character in the films, mm-hmm. you know, so his his great grandfather grandfather, you know. But I mean, it it all it, it's all there. I mean, you know, Gene Wilder and and Mel Brooks did their their homework. I'm not I'm not saying, but I do like that at the time that the film is set, people are gonna have their own beliefs. You know that that's just a rumor. Um, he was a quack. There's I mean, nothing to prove it. Forty years of rumors. Yeah. Things get around, you know. At this, if we're going with the original happening in the 30s, and this is happening in the 70s, if we're happy, if, oh no, does this take place in the 70s or does it take place in the in the in the, in the 1930s? I think it's supposed to to take place earlier than the um than it was, because I don't I don't think the original Frankenstein was meant to be set in the 30s. Hmm. Well, either way. Generally speaking, let's say it's been 40 years since the original 30s film. So 40 years of rumors and hearsay, people are going to get their own ideas of what Victor Frankenstein did in that castle. So, yeah, now uh, Frederick has to go to Transylvania to finalize the affairs of his family. If if somebody leaves you a castle, you want to go see the castle and pick out the good stuff. I mean, it, yeah. Who wouldn't want to live in a castle? I mean, for at least a few days, you want to be like, yeah, this, this is my castle in Transylvania. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah. So he goes and he says goodbye to his fiance Elizabeth. I've always had a weird... I could never really get a reading on Elizabeth as a character. Like... By her own verbiage, she seems to be completely virginal. She doesn't even want to kiss uh, Frederick. Nothing romantic at all until they get married. But there's always been a subtext of that's not how she actually feels. Maybe it's me. Well, there are some old tropes. And they're not always the nicest tropes about the the women who say no 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 but really they just want a man to take them you know we'll get to that when we get to that part of the movie yeah yeah let's just say not everything in this movie has aged gracefully but from this point where he's saying goodbye to elizabeth and elizabeth doesn't want to kiss him or anything like that like I said, that's always been my reading on her. I don't know about you. Well, I mean, it's it's very definite that she's not into him. But he's also a doctor, which means he's got money. So, of course, he's going to marry him, maybe. At least, at least that's how I always understood that. Well, also, her... I I think at the start of the movie, her father is probably more wealthy than... Frederick. Mm. Uh possibly not after his inheritance. We we don't know what the Frankenstein estate carried with it. But she is still engaged to the man but has no interest in him 
romantically, I guess. Sexually, yeah. definitely. Like, yeah. he blows a kiss to her and she dodges it. Yeah. So she's maybe with him because of social status. I don't know. Yeah, that she had to be with him for some other reason. Maybe her father set it up. Maybe, you know, we don't know. Yeah. It's just something that's always, yeah, just my own thing here. Um, let's see, we have to, let's get to Transylvania. And <laughs> the oldest gag in comedy is often still the funniest. Walk this way. One of uh, your favorite Aerosmith songs right here. This is where they got it. They they saw this bit, and this is literally where they got the song, they said. <laughs> but but like this. this is an old vaudeville joke. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, they, they just, yeah, lifted and put it in the movie. But, of course... By by the time this film came out, who knows old vaudeville jokes anymore? So everybody thinks it comes from this film, yeah. Yeah, Igor here, who worked, who's his grandfather worked for Victor, Victor Frankenstein. And now he is the it's never really explained what why he is all of a sudden working for for for, for Frederick. Like, is he now caretaker of the castle or something? Yeah. All, all we was, get is that your grandfather worked for my grandfather, and now I work for you. The interesting thing is, is that um, there is a long kind of tradition in in some places of that's just the kind of family thing of... Our family have been caretakers of this land. You know, my father was the the caretaker and we lived on this land and now I am the caretaker and my son will be the caretaker and the, you know. So it wasn't unusual on big estates for there to be a family who lived in the estate and a family who was the caretaker. And the father would be the caretaker and their son would grow up to be the caretaker and their son would. So the fact that Igor's father would have been the caretaker and his grandfather would have been the care. It, it wouldn't have been that unusual. Mm. In in kind of European history, it's it's not. And if you read a lot of old literature. You do find that of like, you know, I'm the caretaker and my father was the caretaker before me. And, you know, it's just it kind of how it goes. Um, the interesting thing is, is that uh, in the Discworld novel series, there is an entire group uh, called Igors. Hmm. And they are a family and. They're kind of exactly what you think, but they are the best surgeons and scientists on the entire disc. Um, and they tend to practice on themselves. And they are, you know, they wear their scars as badges of honor. And they tend to talk with a lisp and they say things like, yes, master. And, you know, um. Uh, although mostly that is an affect and they can 
speak perfectly plainly if they they wish but that you know it's just part of the job uh and they rent themselves out to mad scientists and other sorts um and it's considered a mark of high status to have an igor in your service and uh they're just a giant family who are all named igor uh and you kind of find them everywhere where interesting science or medicine is going on um and they're one of my favorite parts of the the discworld actually uh so i i love i love this this character and i love that he can that he he immediately greets frederick with sarcasm you know it's like oh are you are you frederick frankenstein it's frankenstein are you igor oh it's igor you know it's Broder- he does call him Froderick for I think most of the movie afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and I and I like that at first Frederick's like it's Fred. Never mind, you know. <laughs> and I like but, that he he calls him Igor after that, and I- Igor just goes with it. Igor's <laughs> like, yeah, if we're just doing the sarcastic, we're you know saying our names funny. <laughs> I mean. Uh... I will. I mean, Igor is what I want to be as an employee. <laughs> Just yeah, add to the sarcasm. Like if, if I have to work for you, I'm going to be sarcastic and mock you the entire time. And of course, the running gag of the hump, which is Marty Feldman's creation. Uh, they gave him the hump. Of course, but the fact that he he just apparently kept moving it around during filming. And apparently during at one point during filming, Gene Wilder, you know, as as Frederick looked around and said, wasn't your hump on the other side? And he went, what hump? And it stayed in the movie. And they just thought it was hilarious. So they they left it in a running gag that would come back because Mel Brooks would would use the same gag in uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights with Prince John's mole. Not as funny, not as funny, but still. Yeah, but uh, yeah, apparently that was just Marty Feldman messing around, <sighs> and it and it is one of the one of the funnier gags in the movie. Just the hump never quite being where you expect it to be. The meeting with uh, Igor leads us uh, straight into meeting Ingo, which I think is one of the funnier reveals of a character. Yep, Frederick just throws his suitcase into the into the hay barrel and just lands on her, and then he takes it off and says, "Would you like to go for a roll in the hay? Roll, roll, roll in the hay." I have done that so many times. <laughs> just you know, be, being being you know, a a kid that grew up in you know the middle of nowhere in the country. There's a lot of hay everywhere. So anytime you find a pile of hay, you just jump in it and go, roll, roll, roll in the hay. How old were you when you figured out what roll in the hay meant? <laughs> oh, I knew I knew from the moment I saw the movie. Uh, you know, it, it was, you know, that, that was not a joke that was ever lost on me when I saw it. But it, it's still fun to do. <laughs> and the fact that, they, that Mel Brooks turned that into a full-blown musical number. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, again, it, it's Terry Gar at her hottest at that point, and that's her entire character is that she's straight up flirting with Victor. Uh, excuse me, Vic, not Victor, Frederick. 
Yeah, say it again. And you know, Inga's whole thing throughout the whole movie is she's you know showing off the showing off the cleavage, flirting with with Frederick throughout the whole movie. But the the interesting thing is is that this could be like a complete bimbo role, but it never is, which I kind of like. She's actually competent at her job in the lab. Yeah. So I do appreciate that. Yeah, they 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 could have played her dumb, but she knows what she's doing. It's just that she happens to be blonde and buxom and happen to talk in a lot of innuendos. Which there's nothing wrong with any of those things. No. Um, but I mean, it it makes her a fun lab assistant. <laughs> Yeah. But she also she is also a competent lab assistant, which is great. I mean the the fact that and it does but it does undercut I mean she does get undercut at one point later on when Elizabeth comes in and she asks, What exactly do you do around here? And it's like Frederick which wants to push it along, but I kind of would have liked if if if, if if Inga had actually said what her job was, you know, competently. Well, the but thing I, is, is that she did actually start to do that, and then Frederick cut her off, which, you know. Well, he just he, he did just sleep with her, so he's kind of wanted to throw, throw that under the rug. But you know, I'm I'm not gonna fault Inga because if I was stuck in a castle with 1970s Gene Wilder. You know, shoot your shot, girl. <laughs> yeah, why not? Of course I'm not going to say I wouldn't. <laughs> Where I mean, his there? hair in this movie is on point. All right. And again, uh, going back to the musical, Roger Bard in that wig looks just like Gene Wilder. And with the with the impression, it was perfect. Yeah. I mean, it was a good look. This movie, and I did not notice, I did not really think about it until I was paying attention watching this movie. This movie is responsible for a meme. Where we get the little turning hamster, epic hamster turn. Yeah, it is, it is that, one of the great musical things, yeah. That, cue, that musical cue here that's the song that plays when the little hamster turns around and dramatic, dramatically. Yeah. Oh, the things you know when you have to pay attention to some of these movies. It is indeed. Um, what knockers? Thanks. <laughs> I, I I'm sorry because I could say this whole movie is full of one-liners. Yeah. Um, we also uh. As soon as we get to the castle, we get uh, to meet Frau Blucher. Um, there is a running, there is a long running thought. Now it is incorrect that the reason that the horses uh, cry every time uh, she says her name or someone does say her name is that people thought that Blucher meant glue, either in German or Yiddish. This is incorrect. This is the thing a lot of people thought of. I even I thought about this. I thought it was that for years. Uh, apparently, it's a gag that so many people missed in the movie. It is just 
someone ominous saying their name and you get like a dun 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 or a thunder crack or something something to make it ominous and scary. He wanted the horses to whinny whenever someone said that name as a signal to have this character be ominous and threatening and people just didn't get the joke. Yeah, I mean, it's such a specific thing, though, with the horses. I think that that's one of those things of you go too specific with something and the joke falls flat. Like, if it had just been Thunder, I think the joke would have landed better. Or a musical something, or, you know, I think if it had been a little more generic. But the fact that it's specifically the horses. You know, if it had been, like, grass, you know, glass cracking, or, you know, a scream, or, you know, any kind of generic other thing. But the the specificity of the horses was what I think threw people off. Agreed. Um, Even I thought that's what it meant for years, until I actually looked it up. Yeah, and even even during the rewatch, I, I said to someone that it is one of the most debated jokes in film history of why why do the horses do that? Because it's, you know, like, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I think I think maybe it's the specificity of horses specifically if it had just been any animal that was around they could have done the werewolf howl i think that would have worked better oh the werewolf howl would have been good yeah i i think i think that would have been yeah um but yeah i i I just think the horses was kind of the where the misstep was um so we find out a frau being was victor's lab assistant back in the day though she feigns uh feigns uh idiocy on what exactly victor did in the uh in the castle and Even, uh, where his private library may have been and you know the laboratory and all that yeah um but of course later on she's the one through her violin playing that leads them to finding the laboratory. Finding the notes, finding everything. And and finding the book, How I Did It, by Victor Frankenstein. Also one of the rejected book titles from O.J. Simpson. I did, I, yeah, I didn't want to mention that, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, now if you have a book that says how I did it, that people, I think what people are going to think about. You know what? I'm just going to say now that Norm MacDonald's not here to do it, it is up to us to continue to remind people that OJ Simpson is in fact a murderer. Mm. Because Uh, Norm would have wanted us to. Hey, (laughs) he risked it. He was willing to lose his job on SNL for it. Indeed. The um I love this painting of Gene Wilder in the movie. Yeah, the two paintings that they did of Gene Wilder as Victor Frankenstein 
with, you know, him first, you know, the painting as we see it first, that's just the portrait of Victor. And then after Frederick reads it and goes like, it could work, I'm going to make a creature. And then it's the the painting smiling, you know, with the maniacal smile. I, I love those two portraits. Again, uh, one of the old one old gag in comedy, as several movies have done something like that. Yeah. Even again, Mel Brooks, another joke that Mel Brooks would recycle for Robin Hood Men in Tights, uh, when uh, Tracy Ullman brings out uh, the stand-up of the sheriff of Nottingham and professes her love for the man, how it goes from a smiling picture to a very scared look. Yeah. So yeah, um, I mean, it's old joke, but it still works. You know, sometimes the classics are the classics for a reason. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, so, I mean, Frederick gets the nightmare. I was like, he's, he's, you know, he doesn't want to be a Frankenstein. He doesn't want to follow in his family's footsteps. But he's kind of pushed into it by Frau, by, you know... It, it, the movie also is implying that it is the spirit of his grandfather that's pushing him into joining the family business, as it well, were. Well, it's destiny. 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 Yeah. <laughs> the, um... Put the candle back! <laughs> I gotta say that the put the candle back sequence is one of my favorite sequences in the entire film because it just builds so perfectly in the, you know, like, well, maybe you take the candle out, maybe you put it in and then take it out just a little bit. Maybe you twist it a little to the, like, you know, just them trying to figure out the exact combination of the candle and the way that the thing turns and then he finally figures it out, and he's finally free. And then you just hear Inga, put the candle back. <laughs> I, I love that whole thing. That's the great payoff of that love, that entire scene. <laughs> yeah. But And then they finally get down there thinking that they're, you know, they're all there. And then they, they get to the row of heads, and then the final one is Igor. And he sings, I ain't got nobody. And then he's like, oh, I just took the dumbwaiter down. It was, you know. Yeah, but I mean, every time I hear that song, I I think of uh, our friend who was like, that's his go-to karaoke song. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so like, so obviously uh, Igor heard the violin music just as Frederick and Inga did. He just took a different way down. Yeah. I, I also love them finding the violin and Igor touching it and saying, it's still warm. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> it's so good. But uh, we really need to to uh, fast forward to the creation of the creature here. Uh, so, you know, Frederick decides he's going to give in to destiny. He's going to create the creature. Uh, and they need to create a creature who is larger because that will make things easier somehow cue the joke about the enormous richard (laughs) yep 
because you have to work that in somehow because men are writing this. It's going to be very popular. Tell me men are writing this without telling me men are writing this. Fortunately, we're having uh, the hanging of the seven-foot-tall serial killer. That helps. Yeah. <laughs> I love how easy that was. Um, Didn't have to cobble anything together. It was just the, like, oh, do you need a seven-and-a-half-foot-tall serial killer? Oh, we just happened to be executing one today. I love the transition between uh, Igor's drawing and the hanging of of the serial killer. Yeah. Like I mean, we don't know what he did. We just know that they're hanging someone. He's a criminal of some kind. Yeah. Cr- but, criminal uh, of some fashion. Yeah. Unlike his grandfather, who had to take several cadavers and make a body out of that. Yeah, just re- ready-made body that is apparently the proportions because it's a comedy movie and we need to speed this up uh so all we need is the brain send igor to get the brain it's apparently a real guy that hans they're talking- yes yeah hans delbrook um that they're sending um but uh Igor sees his reflection in the mirror, gets freaked out, drops the brain. It's mush now, so he's got to get Abby someone. Hey, one brain's as good as another, right? It's a brain. It's all he needs. It's a brain. It's a brain. It's brain. meat. You know the drill. Lightning storm. Give my creature life. Ah. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't work. We go up. We have a little pelt we have some sausages <laughs> and then the creature comes to life anyway delayed reaction Del- delayed reaction yeah um yay creature but the creature has the, the abby someone brain and it attacks <laughs> so we've got to play charades <laughs> I love. I mean, I mean, obvi- I mean, it's funny to me, to me, because again, I, the obvious is there, but they're so dumb in this scene that you know they have to get the big clues. Yeah, it's it's such a goofy scene that you can't help but love it. Meanwhile, the villagers are kind of understandably concerned that another Frankenstein has moved into the castle and. They don't want any more problems. Look, there's a Frankenstein in the castle, and we just had a giant thunderstorm. Okay, we know where this leads. <laughs> they they get Kenneth Mars to do his the Kenneth Mars thing. He's got a prosthetic arm that sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, and sometimes it's on the other arm. There's actually a couple of scenes where it switches arms. I don't know how many people notice that, but sometimes it's one arm, sometimes it's the other. If if the hump can change position, so can the arm. Yeah. The monster eventually kind of... Yeah, Frau Blucher sets sets, uh, the the creature free, realizes that she can control the monster with the violin, just like uh, Victor did. And we find out... 
Yeah, this is where we get the one of the greatest line deliveries in the whole movie. He was my boyfriend. <laughs> the choice to use the word boyfriend, I think, is one of the greatest comedic, you know, home runs in this a entire movie, film. Uh, yeah, a different movie would have probably used lover or someone or something else, but the fact that she used boyfriend just punches that that comedic tick. Yeah, it's th- that that is one of the greatest choices. Or we were in love, but yeah, the, the specific use of boyfriend. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, Mo- monster gets gets uh, freaked out because you know sparks fire. Rawr. Fire bad. Fire bad. Uh, and so we get the, the fun little romp of the creature running around the countryside and we get the, our references to the first two films. Yeah. The, the, the little girl from the first film, uh, who doesn't end up drowned, but ends up getting thrown through the window of her parents' house and safely back into her bed. He's not such a bad guy. He's trying to make sure she gets into bed on time. And then we get the famous uh, blind hermit scene from the second film, which does not end well for the monster. <laughs> he gets monster. hot soup poured on his on his reanimated junk. He gets his hand set on fire. Yeah, um, th- this is such a great comedy bit between Peter Boyle and Gene Hackman. Oh, just one of the, the great scenes in film. Uh, between the two of them. Words cannot describe this scene. You have to actually watch this scene. Most of this movie, you have to just sit down and watch it. Uh, note, side note, uh, I watch this movie on Amazon Prime because it's available for streaming, and if uh, you have Amazon Prime, uh, please go ahead and watch it. It's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, really, really good uh, use of your uh, Amazon Prime should you have that uh, feature. Um. But uh, this is such a a good little bit of physical comedy. You can't really talk talk about it in in vocalization. Yeah. Um. But I I like these two bits because you can tell that they're love letters to the first two films and to what James Whale did with those two films. Uh. But they are a fun twist on those two scenes. Yeah. Um, but then the monster hears the music and we find out that Frederick is playing the music and, you know, lures him uh, Pied Piper style back into a room and locks him up and decides to go the exact opposite of his grandfather. Like we said at the beginning, instead of, um, you know, ignoring the creature that he made, he decides to show him love. He goes in and he tells him, like, you know, you are my creation and I love you. You're you're gorgeous and wonderful and they don't understand you, but I I do. And I am a Frankenstein. Yeah, he embraces his lineage finally. And like I said, this is the twist that really makes this a great sequel to the Frankenstein lore. Yes, it's a comedy, but taking it is that 
Frederick learns from the mistakes of his relatives, where Victor and even his own father, again, if you go by the other Universal movies, abandon the creature, he embraces the creature. He shows compassion and love to his creature that none of the other creatures got. And it's just, and I think it's because he was so adamant of not being a Frankenstein that that was that was the the trick, you know, to show love and compassion. Whether when all of the others would shy away or even try to end the creature's existence. Yeah, don't abandon your children. <laughs> she, like. I wonder if Mary Shelley had had any uh, daddy issues when he when she wrote that book. Um, no. Eh, it. <laughs> I not not really. Um, I I think it was more societal daddy issues rather than per- personal. Mm. Um. But so- um, the the. Interesting thing is, this is kind of where the movie goes away from the Universal uh, Frankenstein films and more into King Kong. Yeah, we get a stage performance. <laughs> Frederick brings the creature on stage and he's going to show not only can, has he reanimated this person with an abnormal brain, but, you know, uh, in the words of, of Frederick, turned him into a man about town. And we go into the famous putting on the Ritz bit. You know, he's got a suit and tie on. He's he's dancing. Yeah, it's it's complex motor function. Yeah. So it's it's not just simple reanimation, but it's actual, you know, complex, sophisticated movement. Um and uh, some speech, you know. The put, putting on the roots, yeah. Yeah. Tuba uba. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but and it worked. I mean, like if if the one stage light didn't pop, it would have worked. <laughs> Granted, the 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 crowd immediately turns on them. Like he, they want nothing to do with what's going on. But. I feel like, you know, like it it almost like it they almost turned the crowd around on them until that like one light fixture pops and he goes cuz you know, fire bad. Yeah. Um I do love I do love Frederick's line of for your own safety please don't humiliate him. There was something deeply resonant about that line. Like on on one hand, yes, this is a very uh a seven-foot-tall gorilla, as uh, Frederick called him earlier in the film. But he's still, he's also a sensitive soul. Yeah, you know? though, he, yeah. though he seems thick-skinned. <laughs> but the, they immediately turn on him. He doesn't actually do anything particularly violent. Uh, he does kind of push Frederick away. When Frederick scared. grabs at him and and yells at him a little bit. Well, one, yeah, he's scared. And one, two, and yes, Frederick starts yelling at him to calm down. And if if anyone who knows anything knows, when you yell at someone to calm down, that's exactly what they want to hear. Yeah. 
But it's not just that Frederick is yelling at him to calm down. It's that Frederick is yelling at him in a very self-centered way. Yeah, because uh, we see Frederick. Frederick's still trying to to get the, the dance routine on. And it's almost like the creature is ruining his dance routine. Again, try, uh, falling into the tropes of his father and grandfather. Yeah, Frederick is centering everything on himself again as... Where he, in in the in the room when he first sh- starts showing affection to the creature, he's saying very nice things about the creature. You know, I'm going to show them that, you know, you are gentle and you are kind. You deserve love. It's very you, you, you. You are not a monster. Yeah. Um, but when things start to go wrong on the stage and the creature is not behaving exactly the way Frederick wants, Frederick is, how dare you do this to me? I put a lot of work into this. This is my show. You're, you're embarrassing me. It's all about me, me, me. Mm-hmm. So the tone flips. It's angry at the monster for what the monster is doing to me, Frederick. Again, it's like a parent scolding a child for acting like a child. Yeah, and so he's not worried about, hey, you need to calm down. You need to show them that you are gentle and you are kind and you so that they understand you because you might be in danger and you might, you know, I'm worried about you and what they're doing to you. It's I'm worried about what you're doing to me. You know, which is sort of, again, the kind of uh, abusive parent relationship that was sort of written about in the in the books and the, the first movies and stuff like that, you know. So Frederick still hasn't learned his lesson. He starts to, but then he kind of relapses. Yeah, it's it's back, you know, you know, when when the shiz hits the fan. Frederick relapses to to what he knows, uh, which is not good. Um, And it's the monster that suffers. You know, they grab him and they take him out and they put him in chains in the jail. Um, And it's it's almost as soon as he comes. It's almost like as soon as Frederick regains consciousness after the monster knocks him down, that he realizes that he effed up real bad. (laughs) Yeah. And he's kind of realizing that and we do have a little bit of a an interlude where Inga says I really wish I could do something for you as she's you know kind of rubbing his hand all over her chest and then we get a a, you know Frederick kind of stares at the camera for for a minute and we get a cut to black Well, it's more like a let's not roll around too much because we're apparently suspended in midair on the lab table. Does that technically count as the mile high club? Well, it's not quite a mile, but it's fairly high. It's the fairly high club. Um, But uh, yeah, then uh, Frau Blucher comes in and she's like, uh, by the way, uh, your fiance is a. Uh, Gonna Coming. be here soon. Nice. She's, yes. 
Elizabeth is on her way. She's going to be arriving tonight. Um, as meanwhile, you're your, as you're sleeping with your lab assistant. Yeah, as as you finally decided to sleep with your lab assistant. Um, however, uh, over in the jail, the the local one of the local cops has decided to taunt the monster with a match. And the monster's like, yeah, forget this. I'm out of here. And very easily breaks out of his chains. I like the implication that the monster was just being nice and sitting there. Like, I could have broken out of these at any point. But, you know, I figured that it was easier and nicer to just stay here. Honestly, at that point, the monster would probably be safer in the, in, in the cell versus being out there. Yeah, maybe. I mean, um, it's 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 a trope that we've seen several times. One of my favorite versions of this is in the X-Men cartoon with Beast. Where Beast straight up says, I'm very strong. I can break out of the prison anytime I want. But I'm going to stay in here and let them know that I'm civilized. Yeah, I mean, maybe that was the, the thinking there. The creature was like, well, I, I'm trying to show them that I'm nice and I'm not a giant rage monster but yeah so he he breaks out very easily and i i do like the the point where uh kenneth mars just walks out and he's like you know mobs are horrible unruly things and it's about time we had one (laughs) (laughs) um you know we have our our little interlude with elizabeth where she shows up and she's like oh yes i'm i'm your fiance but neither of us are really that into it but we should probably get married because you're inheriting and my father's probably pushing us into it or whatever you know i mean mm. (laughs) igor when he meets Elizabeth, it's kind of a little... Mm. On one it's, hand, it could be just, he's just mirroring Frederick. He's saying everything that Frederick says, but he gets a little too creepy with it. Yeah, I don't I don't really know what the purpose of this joke was, but it is a little uncomfortable. And the payoff of the joke is him doing a Groucho Marx impression. You take the brunette and I'll take... You, know, you, you take the blonde and I'll take the brunette. Yeah, it's it's a little weird. Although Elizabeth is a very deeply strange woman because she's in her room brushing her hair alone, singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Yeah. In just the strangest way. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. Gets the attention of the creature. And he... um. Yeah, this is that scene that we need to talk about. Well, this is in parallel to the first movie, which is where, you know, in, in the book and uh, not so much in the movie, that, that, that comes up in the second movie, but in the book, the creature says if you're going to abandon me all i want is love so make me a mate who will love me we'll go off and just be together start our own family be our own people 
We will leave you alone. And Victor says, no, you're awful. You're hideous. I regret ever creating you. And in retaliation, the creature is like, okay, well, then I will kill everyone you love. And kind of starts with his fiance and um so this kind of taking of the fiance is a a trope throughout the the Frankenstein films as retaliation for Victor not creating a, a mate for the creature um and- yeah, for some reason, Elizabeth already has the Bride of Frankenstein streaks in her hair. Never explained. You know, some women have gray. It's fine. You know, the creature takes takes her, and instead of, you know, murdering her for that reason, he takes her, and instead he's like, ah, she's hot. And he takes off his pants, and she sees... That everything on him is giant, and she's like, "Oh, okay, let's do this." But she's still kind of like, "Hey, no, I'm, I'm actually be doing this. I'm engaged. Yeah, I'm saving it's myself kind for marriage." Dubious at first, and then she's like super into it and decides to marry him because oh, she's supposed to be yeah. alive. I finally found yeah. him. So you know, make of the joke what you will, but um, I'm I'm not gonna lie, I. As the you know the sweet mystery of life joke, it's funny. I still find it like mm, this. This this scene did not age very well. Yeah, the scene that starts it off kind of does not age very well. But the the uh... but she eventually gets into it. That doesn't make the scene very doesn't that that doesn't make it better. But yeah. you know she's clearly into the monster and his um giant Schwanstucker as they call it in the movie. Yeah. So her and the monster fall in love and decide to get married later down the road. But uh in in the in the middle of their tryst, uh the monster hears the music and gets lured back to the castle. Uh because Frederick has come to the uh conclusion that he needs to sacrifice something of himself in order to help his creation. And that is that he is going, he's figured out a way to transfer some of his intellect to the monster. It will calm the monster down, enable him to speak. uh, Think rationally. Yeah. To speak and think rationally to uh, the crowd um and basically save his life he's uh, uh, frederick even says it'll save his life yeah so they get the monster to come back to the castle they get there uh just as the mob storms in they're begging just for seven more seconds but the mob starts to smash the equipment and they don't know if the thought transference has worked but then the monster screams out, unhand that man, as they're trying to pick Frederick up off the table. And they're like, did the monster speak? No, he couldn't have. And he's like, no, no, put him down. And uh, the monster delivers delivers a wonderful speech about uh, 
he just wanted people to love him, but then he saw people would fear him, so he thought, well, okay then, maybe I'll just become feared and but that didn't work either, but finally his creator gave him gave of himself at great risk uh to his life to transfer some of his intellect and now he can speak to them and he wants to save his creator's life and you know it's a nice little speech um, the the one bad part about this movie is that they completely skip over this and go straight to the happy ending one thing that i love that they did in the musical is show that the while frederick gave the monster life the ending is now the monster is giving uh, Frederick life using the knowledge that he got from from uh, Frederick as a doctor to save his life. Yeah, we kind of just ended with like Frederick just laying there lifeless on the table and we don't really know what happened to him. And then we skip ahead to Frederick, like, you know, breaking in with Inga, you know, and they're married now. So you're like, oh, okay, he did survive, you know. That that is one of the things that, uh, again, the the improvement that the musical did over the original film. But uh, Inga Inga wonders if if the creature got part of since it was a two way transference, uh, and the creature got some of uh, Frederick's intelligence. What did Frederick get from the creature? And we start finding out as Inga starts singing the song that they were playing on the violin and it starts to affect Frederick. And um, then as they get into bed, yeah, we get the, uh, the growl from Frederick. And then as we fade to black, we get Inga start singing the sweet mystery of life. As uh, as we fade out there. Uh, meanwhile, likewise, the creature and Elizabeth are also married. She is completely into him. She's got the hair up in the Bride of Frankenstein style. But it seems that uh, the lust is gone from uh, the creature at this point and completely transferred into Frederick. Because he's just yeah. reading, a, he's reading a newspaper. He's, you know, the Wall Street Journal. Not a, not a, not even like a good newspaper. It's just the Wall Street Journal. It's just you know. Because that's what smart people read. <laughs> no, that's what you know boring money people read. But you know, it's like she's trying to get him into it, and you know, she's trying to get the creature into the mood. She's all, and he's just like, yes, dear, uh huh, mm hmm. Yeah, he gives a look to the camera like eh, this again, you know. So yeah, it doesn't look like uh, while it while Elizabeth may think she has her happy ending, maybe her happy maybe her ending isn't so happy after all. Yeah. But yeah, that's uh, that is Young Frankenstein. It's still a classic movie, honestly. This this, I mean, asking the question straight up, yes, this movie has the magic. Yeah, Still. Mel Brooks considers this his finest, but not his funniest film. 
in his catalog. I'll agree. As a, you know, taking away the comedic stuff, it is a great monster movie. It is a great retelling of Frankenstein and the twists of Frederick learning from his father's and grandfather's mistakes. It's a funny movie. There's great, again, there's great one-liners, there's great jokes, but there are funnier Mel Brooks movies. Yeah, uh, th- just as far as gags, yeah, there there are funnier Mel Brooks movies. Um, but this is is one of the more cohesive plots and one of the better directed films and yeah so i i i totally agree with that that assessment um a couple of the jokes unfortunately don't don't hold up and are a little cringy yeah as we've said but it's not bad enough to completely put you off other than the one scene we complained about, everything has aged about this movie perfectly. Again, especially if you're a fan of the classic Universal monster movies. Yeah, this is a great spoof of them, but also a great tribute to them. And it's that's rare to do both. Yeah, it, it was so good to have a, just a really good film this week. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you need a palate cleanser. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we talked about, you know, no offense to people who like the last few movies. You know, no offense to Xenon fans, no offense to, to uh, Witch Mountain fans, but we, we, we really needed a palate cleanser this week. <laughs> if, if, if you haven't seen this movie in a while, or uh, do yourself a favor and do it. It's, it, it, it's, it's really good. I mean, it's 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 ninety nine percent of this movie still holds up, which is more than we could say about other movies of its time. Yeah, and then uh, skip over and watch at least the first two uh, Universal Frankenstein films. Yeah, uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, both uh, really fun films. So. I think that's all we can really say about Young Frankenstein. Yep. Kiki, this episode is episode 99. Wow. How far we've come. I know. It it was just, you know, a a while, you know, over a year plus ago that you and I sat down, recorded our first episode, and we're still doing it. So... We wanted to do something very special for next week's episode because it is the 100th episode of Rewatching the Magic. We want to do something really special. Yes, it's, it's, it's Halloween season. It's spooky season. But allow us to put that on pause for one week. Next week, the special 100th episode we are going to be talking about one of the greatest Disney movies of all time, Mary Poppins. It's time to get supercalifragilisticexpialidocious up in this B. Yeah, so very special episode next week. 
come by and and uh, fly a kite with us next week. Well, there was some kite flying in this movie too. <laughs> yeah, there was. Hope hopefully no lightning next week though. <laughs> that would have made it a completely different movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so again, uh, that's all we have to say for this episode. So. Join us next week for Mary Poppins, our 100th episode, and we will talk to you all then. Bye. Bye! Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.